0: Hello and welcome to Podshout. Podshout is a podcast series that will bring to you, our valued listeners, interviews covering a wide range of topics. We have three main channels. Property and business. We will bring to you a range of conversations with some of this country's leading property experts and business leaders. Inspiring people. We will bring to you interviews with inspirational individuals from around the world who've achieved greatness and inspire others to do so. And finally, our third channel will be more of a philosophical set of podcasts about life, its challenges, and some of the views from our host Greg Sugar's upcoming book, Life in Twos. We hope you enjoy this series, which is available from wherever you get your favourite podcasts. You can follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Podchow, and you can see what's coming up in future episodes. Or come and visit us at our website, www.podshout.com.au Hi there and welcome to this week's episode of Podshout. I'm Greg Sugar's, your host, and today's Podshout guest is one of Australia's most prominent and -and up-and-coming experts in the executive and financial risk insurance world. As the business community becomes more risk-adverse and, dare I say, more litigious, many professionals and corporations are seeking to offset this risk with insurance. Caitlin Carson is a practice leader at Marsh Insurance and is a specialist in financial risk insurance. She works with a range of ASX-listed companies, global businesses, not-for-profits, and government bodies. In 2016, Caitlin was recognised by her peers as one of the top 50 young guns in the insurance world. Just last year, Caitlin was awarded National Young Broker of the Year by the National Insurance Brokers Association. Having studied leadership courses in Zurich, And at Yale, Caitlin is well-placed to talk not only about insurance, but also about the opportunities, particularly for women, in what has traditionally been a male-dominated industry. We hope you enjoy our chat with Caitlin Carson. Hi, Caitlin, and welcome to Podchat. Thanks,
1: Greg. Thank you for having me.
0: In my introduction, I mentioned that you've received a number of industry accolades. That being said, whilst the theme of the awards was Young Gung and Young Achiever, you've actually been practicing in the industry for a while.
1: It's true, Greg, I've been doing this for 15 years now.
0: Hmm. Seems like uh, you're very young to be doing that. You must have started
1: uh, just out of high school. Actually, that's true. I was um 18 years old when I first started at JLT as the office junior at the time.
0: Ah, because that was what I was going to ask you. You know your journey in the insurance industry. So you started from the bottom, I suppose, and have worked your way up.
1: Well and truly. So um, I had just finished a business diploma. Yep. And I was looking to get a bit of in-office experience before starting um, a university degree. And I interviewed at JLT to be the office
0: junior and. And JLT for our listeners? uh, Is Jardine Lloyd-Thompson. And they're a very old name in the insurance world? They certainly are. Um, Recorded in London and taken
1: over by Marsh McLennan last year.
0: Right. So now your role's with Marsh now. That's correct. And most consumers and business people kind of roll their eyes when they write the cheque for insurance, but they think nothing of having a bit of a flutter on the, the ponies or buying a lotto ticket. Not having insurance can be a bit like taking a bit of a gamble.
1: That's true, Greg. Uh, you know, people certainly do consider insurance to be an expense that just keeps on taking, but certainly been there plenty of times in the past where, you know, these events that we do um, you know, stand in for are unexpected and they can genuinely save a business and that's what we endeavour to do yeah. and want to do.
0: And even at a personal level, I suppose, um, we've just seen in Australia last summer the bushfires... Um, and we've had um, all sorts of natural disasters in Australia up the East Coast with cyclones and things like that, um, and a great number of people um, you know, probably have never even thought about, you know, oh, I've been paying this premium, but they don't call on it very often, but when they need it, they need it.
1: They certainly do, and, it, and it's interesting because they'll pay the premium but they won't read the policy. Yeah. And I do understand that they're not exciting to read.
0: No, they they're are. very long. <laughs> <laughs>
1: they are. But, you know, the onus is certainly on the customer to read the policy and yep. understand what's being provided because there's vast differences between the policies and you, you should be paying a premium for what cover you're getting. Yeah, so, so you, get,
0: you are getting what you pay for.
1: Exactly. If yeah. it's dirt cheap, you need to give some thought as to what they're not covering. Yeah.
0: And from personal experience, um, I know that insurance premiums in general have been rising substantially over the last few years. What's the main cause of that?
1: It's actually been claims-driven, which does – somewhat help the conversation because we're able to say, well, insurance is providing such significant value because we've had huge losses with respect to, you know, cyclones and floods and fire events both in Australia and around the world, which insurance is called upon um, to provide relief for. So at at the moment, the modelling that Marsh has done globally shows that the Australian market and particularly the financial lines market that I work in is actually the market... Which is the worst in the world for premium increases at the moment because of the claims activities we
0: yeah, experience. Right. So, when we talk about professional risks insurance, um, <clears throat> now I can understand that there um, are probably people who and professional uh, professions that are a bit more risky than others, mm-hmm. or do they all get lumped into the one pool?
1: There's definitely professions that are riskier than others. So, you know, when you're considering. Ensuring a profession such as a professional indemnity policy, you've actually got to give consideration as to what type of advice that entails. You know, the advice of an accountant that's offering tax advice versus an accountant that's offering forensic. Um, you know, advice is yeah. very different and to be able to understand that exposure and rate that exposure adequately, you've got to have, you know, a, a vast array of consideration as to, you know, where those claims are going to come from, what type of customers they'll work with uh, and, you know, how you need to design the policy to make sure it's going to be
0: adequate in case there is an issue. And the people that do this at the insurer's level, they're called underwriters? That's correct. And, you um What's a typical profile of an underwriter? Are they a numbers person or risk person or how do they um, sort of end up in that world? Do
1: you know, it's very interesting, Greg, and it's something that I'm quite passionate about that we need to have more education amongst underwriters and brokers. Uh, you will see underwriters, you know, particularly in the professional line space, may have an accounting or a finance or a commerce background but there's actually no formal training to become an underwriter. There's some formal training to become a broker, but, again, it's just a sort of certificate course. Um, So but the types of people that it tends to attract are those that are more um, business orientated. We do have um, a couple now working in the – d and space particularly which is particularly difficult that are ex-actuaries
0: and things like that. Right so D&O we're talking directors and officers so what sort of risks would we be insuring if we uh, wanted our company to have D&O insurance? Sure
1: so if you're a director on a board under the Corporations Act you are personally liable for the decision- decisions that you're yeah, making. Yeah
0: it's pretty scary. <laughs> it's quite
1: terrifying and it's amazing the amount of particularly small businesses that I've gone into and spoken to the board and they're actually not even necessarily aware of that exposure. Yeah. You know, they're thinking that, you know, management liability, which is a product more designed for the smaller companies, is is just an expense on them that they don't need to you know, worry about necessarily. Yeah. Um, so – and as I said, under the Corporations Act there is a personal liability there and d policies are designed to both cover that personal liability for the individual but also companies often have what's called a deed of indemnity which indemniv- indemnifies that individual um, if there is a claim against them. Yep. And so the policies will provide what side a which is if the company does not provide that indemnity and side b which would reimburse the company if they did suffer a claim but the interesting thing is traditionally these policies are not designed to cover the entity so if a claim comes against the entity that's not something that's covered. It's got to be against individuals right? until you get into the problem area, which is Sudsea.
0: <laughs> and DNO insurance, I heard somewhere the other day, I think you confirmed this to me, There's like the premiums have gone up like 600%. That's correct. Yeah. That's what, correct. What's driving that?
1: Again, uh, claims activity.
0: Right. For wow. sure. A lot so, of naughty directors out there.
1: Yeah. So it initially started with... It had been a very soft market for the most sustained period we'd ever seen. Pretty much my entire career up until 2017, we'd just been seeing consistent, um, I call it like a pancaking of cover so the premiums couldn't go down any further so the cover just got broader and broader and about 10 years ago we started offering something which i just alluded to called side c which is company securities cover for claims brought against the entity yes so if you have a a listed company and there is a securities class action against them that a dno policy can respond to that if they've got that type of cover Um, and that has caused huge losses. So at one stage, I think it was in 2017, it was estimated we had about $1.8 billion worth of claims reserves as a result of securities class action claims. Yes. Versus an estimated gross written premium at that time between $200 and $350 million. No, that's a bit of an imbalance. Very, and that's only one
0: portion of yeah, the cover. I want to get on to class actions in a minute actually sure. because there's a bit of action happening there at the moment in the government space. Mm-hmm. Part two of today's Podshout interview will be coming up in just a minute. Podshout proudly supports one of the world's most celebrated children's charities, the Christine and Noble Children's Foundation. CNCF is dedicated to serving the physical, medical, educational, emotional needs of vulnerable children. In the 30 years it's been operating so far, CNCF has assisted almost one million vulnerable, exploited, abused and at-risk children and their families. If you would like to help, please go to www.cncf.org forward slash donate. Now for part two of today's Podshout interview. Now, when we think of insurance markets, um, you know, the name that everybody sort of talks about in the insurance world is Lloyds. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I went to London a few years ago to um, meet with some of these Lloyds people, pretty interesting bunch. Um is that the main market in the world?
1: That is the oldest and, yes, the main market in the world. Yep. Everyone can do business out of Lloyds. Yes. It's not the hero that a lot of people consider it to be. We're using Lloyds at the moment for to try and balance out the capacity that we can't get in Australia. Yes. But their market's probably worse than ours at the moment with yes. respect to you know their appetite where there's been a, a Lloyds review. Um, called the Decile 10 Review, which basically reviewed a whole heap of underwriting lines which are unprofitable. Yes. Uh, the second least profitable was non-US professional indemnity.
0: Right. So, bang, yet another hit. <laughs> Absolutely.
1: And so those, there was a number of underwriting agencies that were told they, were no, they could no longer be part of Lloyd's, and those that remained were told that they could only write the same amount of capacity as they had in the previous year, but they had to increase their rate.
0: you right. Which to meant, make them profitable. Yes, which yeah. basically
1: meant that there was going to be further restriction. Yes. Yeah. So, um, it, it is a capacity provider, but it's certainly not a hero. Mm.
0: Uh, and it, so, you talked about those Lloyd's markets. Um, and what about other markets in the world? The US—that would be a pretty interesting market.
1: US is a very interesting market. I spent a little bit of time there in February. They do use Lloyd's a little bit as well. They won't. They wouldn't be able to provide anything for an australian company unless you had a, a registered entity in the us okay uh and even so their rates and their premiums have always been significantly higher than ours yeah so when i was comparing war stories with them and they were talking 20 percent premium increases that's you know for us we'd say you know 20 is quite good on a six-figure premium they're talking seven and eight-figure premiums
0: yeah right so- <laughs> um and the Lloyds market, it was a very much an old boys club and I say that literally as I don't think I met a single female um, underwriter uh, or broker representative the whole time I was there. Um, you're, a, you know, an up-and-coming young woman in the industry. Do you see that that, that will change? I
1: certainly think it will change and it is changing. Yes. Um, it's really interesting that you mentioned that about Lloyds because I, I was given a tour a few years ago and I – by a young lady uh, who was fantastic, but she actually warned me. She said, oh, I'm really glad you've dressed the way that you have today.
0: Yeah, <laughs> say no more. Yeah, <laughs> um, and that's yeah, there's a big drinking culture. There, it's all the deals are done over lunch yeah. at the pub. It's true. Yep, it's done like that in Australia as well. <laughs> the dark arts of insurance, yeah. um. Now, one of the things I was fascinated by, which, uh, you know, living in Australia, we don't really think of this ourselves, but perhaps uh, we, you know, if we think of America, we think of the, the old ambulance chaser, chaser lawyers and things like that. But one of the things I was absolutely amazed was a number of the Lloyds underwriters said that they classed Australia as the second most litigious country in the world. Absolutely correct. Yeah.
1: And I was discussing that with a, a claims manager in the US earlier this year and he said that he'd done some modelling based on the figures we were receiving out of Australia versus the figures that he was dealing with and he actually considered that we were pretty much on line ball. He said it's just that America is so much bigger. Yes. So if you consider the size of our economy and the claims figures versus the size of the Australian economy and your claims figures, he said you're, you're no, no better than we are.
0: Wow, that's pretty scary. And yes. I think at the moment um, in the news in particular, um, the Attorney General has been talking about um, the class action markets that are present in Australia and they've been talking about these um, class action funders, um, which obviously allows people to um, have somebody, I'm using the word underwrite, underwrite their class action. Mm-hmm. Um in litigation and just last week the Victorian state government have um, to, to pushed the button to legislate to say this is all very good, fine and well. Mm-hmm. So what would you say to the regulators? You know, what, what would your message to them be? What's it going to do to the insurance markets?
1: Well, I think what they're underestimating is that they think that the insurance markets can take it and that's what insurance is there for. Mm. But the on-flow effect on the premiums and then the affordability of this type of insurance for the consumers being, you know, the Australian public and the Australian business community is making this fundamentally uninsurable. Yes. And if we can't provide DNO insurance how do we attract quality directors? How do we have quality companies? We're going to have companies trying to go offshore because they're not able to be afforded adequate protections in Australia. They need to consider that this is not a bottomless pit um, of claims payment. We've had a number of insurers exit the market and some insurers, the rates and the the terms and conditions that they impose at the moment are pseudo-withdrawal. They just don't want to be straight about it. So it's well and truly at crisis point. We've seen a number of um, large ASX companies Companies no longer take what we call side C, which is a company securities um, cover. You know, I wonder if that's going to have an impact on whether or not they're targeted because they don't have that cover anymore yes. or whether or not they're just going to bring those claims against the individuals. But, you know, it's well and surely coming to crisis
0: point. So if you were asked to become a director of a company, you uh, personally say someone said, look, Caitlin, we'd love you to come on board. You'd be looking to see what insurance they had in place before you Even walked in that boardroom, I suppose. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: I am a uh, director of a family business, and we had a management liability policy when I was nineteen and asked to do it. (laughs) And we didn't realise we actually had two because Dad had bought one as well. Yep. Which I only discovered two years ago, but you know, even even at that age, you know, was thinking that we had to make sure we were covered. Yeah,
0: and there's been. so in PI insurance, there's been a couple of big big notable cases in Australia, um, PI, I'm talking about professional indemnity. Um, are they things that are public knowledge or that people talk about in the industry or are they all still big, big? you know, they're in the courtroom so no one really talk about them?
1: Uh, to a certain extent, if they're in the media, they're usually spoken about and because the market's so much harder, a lot of our work involves providing market updates and context as to what's going on at the moment. So. Yeah. You know those big ticket items like the um, the Opal Tower.
0: Yeah. Um, so cladding is just a like that. If if you were going to an underwriter now and saying, "Hey, I'm representing a building company that put aluminium siding on a 20 story office building," that'd be a pretty hard job.
1: Close to impossible. <laughs> close to impossible. Yeah.
0: And then you've got the not only the builders, you've got the engineers and the um, certifiers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they must be finding it so difficult at the moment. Very.
1: And, I, I mean, the hard thing is too, it's, it's mostly impacting the little guys. Yes. Because for the larger risks where you've got a bit more premium to play with, you're able to have a little bit more to and fro with the underwriters. You might have different markets open up to you. Mm. You know, you might be able to go to Lloyd's and get something which doesn't have those that type of exclusionary language. But for a small, you know, little building surveyor that yeah. maybe earns 50 grand a year,
0: they 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 can't
1: they're not even going to consider him
0: yeah and there's there's a theory that people used to use uh a little bit and it's something that um it sounds really attractive and that's the theory of self-insurance like i'll just put a little bit away every year in case something happens but um would be fair to say that um most people underinsure anyway
1: that is probably fair to say, with the exception, I think, of um, directors and officers' liability. Yeah. I think a lot of that, because the market was so soft for such a long time, it was a, an attitude of the capacity is very cheap, so buy as much, buy as, as, much as you possibly can. can. Yeah. So now we're sort of trying to model those figures and the claims that have been experienced yeah, to try and okay. get a more accurate viewpoint. Professional indemnity insurance, though, yes, I would say.
0: As I know personally, it's yeah. a very expensive um, thing. Yeah. Um, Now, just last week, uh, the Prime Minister came out and talked uh, to the Australian public about um, massive increase in cyber attacks on not only government organisations and public bodies, but also Australian businesses. Um, Is there a product out there that helps business people against this Type of risk?
1: Absolutely. So, the primary product that we'd look to for that type of exposure is actually a product called Cyber Liability, which is specifically tailored for that type of exposure. Many consider their current insurance suite might provide some cover, and that's true to a certain extent, but because of the number of losses that we're seeing, insurers are actually starting to exclude that out of a professional indemnity policy. Um, public liability policy and the like. So cyber liability covers your first-party costs, so things like getting you onto a breach response coach, yeah. getting some forensic advice, advice about whether or not you need to inform, you know, whether individuals' information was
0: So the privacy commissioner and all that sort exactly. of thing, yeah.
1: Exactly, and there's also the third-party liability element to that as well, so if there's claims against you for failing to keep certain information confidential. Yeah,
0: and is the, the hurdle to get that type of insurance high or is it available? to anybody
1: it's available to anybody particularly um, you know if you have a company to insure it's very it's a something which falls within the arena of financial lines although it's a very specialist area In yes. Marsh, we have a brilliant specialist cyber team that's all they do yep. and it's it, Typical underwriting information, so in some cases, proposal forms, we like doing a bit more of a deep dive into that exposure because everyone's risk is different and it's really important that we tailor that cover appropriately for that risk. Yes. But as I said, the barriers to entry not as difficult as people would think.
0: Yes. Traditionally,
1: there's been a huge boom in the markets in um, in insurance willing to offer that type of cover, but it's trying to figure out where the actual value is, whose policy is actually going to cover cover
0: something. Yeah.
1: yeah, And the claims experience is always very interesting because it's a very urgent type issue. You need a response in yes. some cases within an hour. Yeah,
0: yeah. and so I think there's been some very public uh, line. Nathan was one just a couple of weeks ago. So it doesn't matter how big or small, you can be attacked. And I think one of the other trends that they mentioned was that, um, you know, trying to get um, sign off to accounts and things like that, which yes. just breaking into everyday processes within business. It's true. It's pretty scary, actually. Yes. <laughs>
1: yes. Social engineering frauds definitely something we're seeing a lot of. Yes. Traditionally under an insurance program, that's typically covered under a crime program because it's talking about money rather than data. Yes. Um, but we've seen a huge upswing, particularly with everyone working from home at the moment with COVID nineteen mm. um, of, of hackers being able to you know really play on those vulnerabilities with people not being in the office and following normal accounting procedures.
0: Yeah. So data actually can also be more valuable than cash, too, because they That's can correct. use it for lots of different things. That's correct. Um, now, I noted in the introduction that you've been lucky enough to study overseas. Um, how did this change your perspective? Um, I, I was really interested to get um, an understanding of uh, coming from the Australian business culture, then going observing how things happen both in Europe and in America, um, just about corporate leadership and management styles.
1: Yeah, mm, Thanks, Greg. Uh, I think probably the biggest game changer for me, particularly when I went to Yale in the US, was I was had an opportunity to be able to go and spend some time with people, not only from all around the world, but also from different types of industries, because I've attended quite a few sort of insurance centric mm. leadership type um arrangements and just being able to sort of consider what they see as a normal day-to-day. And, you know, we speak about insurance being a very male-dominated industry. Oh, totally. (laughs) One of the the ladies that I did that course with was in um, investment banking in New York and just how cutthroat that was you know, talking about how, you know, she dealt with conflict within that within her team, which, you know, has a lot of emotion behind it and, you know, testosterone and things like that. But how she was able to do that, you know, so professionally and and with strength, you know, it was very inspiring to me. And that's what I was looking for going into those types yeah. of
0: courses. So now you lead a team, obviously, at Marsh now. So um, do you feel you have... Um, you know, what sort of leadership style do you think you've developed in, in, in the time while you've been leading those guys sure. and girls?
1: I think it's definitely been evolving. Yes. I had been leading a much smaller team before I moved to Victoria, but that was very new to me. And a lot of the people I was leading at one point, uh, I had reported to them or they had um, you know, been training me in various things. So I think the way I've evolved as a professional has actually turned into a leadership style more around coaching people Yes. Uh, and trying to get the best out of them and getting them to work with each other mm. is very important to me. I have a personal, you know, drive to try and bring on people with good attitudes and good, appro- good approaches to how they handle their work life and their relationships with both clients and underwriters rather than looking for people who are necessarily highly technical Yes. Because I feel like I can teach that,
0: but yeah. I can't teach someone. You can't to teach have... attitude, can you? No. no it's something that you've either got or you haven't got. And um, climbing the corporate ladder, working through JLT, Marsh, um, and you being a male-dominated industry, do you feel you've had to fight harder to get where you are or...?
1: I genuinely don't, but I think it's probably important to take into context there. I came out of the agriculture industry. Right. So I was used to something much more male-dominated. It's n- sure. It's never it's a been... It's
0: walk in the park now.
1: Exactly. Stephon's <laughs> so nice to me, now, you know, <laughs> compared to what I was used to. But I have found, you know, males are some of my biggest advocates. Yes. And those who told me that I was capable of this before I realised it. Yes. They were usually men really wanting to see me do well and, and you know, certainly women there as well. But, yep. you know, some of the loudest advocates um, have been, you know, that male-dominated history. Yeah.
0: And have you had some good mentors? So I've got some phenomenal mentors. Yeah, inside the insurance world and outside, or just in the business.
1: Uh, inside the inside marsh, inside underwriters, you know, different clients that I've become really close yeah. to. Yeah, because I'm very fortunate in what that I do. In what I do, that I get to speak with boards and and you know CEOs and things like yep. that all the time. So there's phenomenal people who have yeah. always been you know willing to offer advice. And you're
0: obviously them. not afraid to ask. No. That's fantastic. I think as
1: long as they're happy to help.
0: <laughs> well, I think generally most um, business people love watching other people um, yeah. succeed because it is something that's you know very um, uh, satisfying as a leader, and with you watch your own people grow. But if you can and add value to somebody else outside your industry too, it's something that people um, you know you know you're going to get some f- f- fulfilment out of, I suppose, because yeah. it's one of those things that. Um, you, know, you, you don't get offered it very often so when people take it um, it's, it's, it's very beneficial um, Caitlin, thanks for being part of Podshout today.
1: Thank you for having me
0: We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Podshout We look forward to bringing you more episodes in coming weeks and you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Podshout to find out what's coming up Otherwise, visit our website www podchat.com.au